this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode two of the DNA season, Just Science interviews Dr. Kenneth Kidd, Professor Emeritus of Genetics at Yale University, about his research in genetics. Dr. Kenneth Kidd has been working on grants from the National Institute of Justice for nearly a decade. In that time, he has made great contributions to our understanding of genetics and its use in forensics. While his work started with genetic modeling of various disorders, it quickly expanded to include many sub-disciplines of DNA research. Listen in as he discusses genetic mapping, population genetics, and his research journey in this episode. For more information on Dr. Kidd's contributions to forensics, listen to the episode of Just Microhaps Perhaps in the 2018 NIJ R&D season of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us from Yale University, we have Dr. Kenneth Kidd. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Now, for those of you who don't know, NIJ has been funding Dr. Kidd's work for a number of years. I actually, as you might remember. Close to 10. Close to 10, okay. Some of the first grants actually came on my watch when I was at NIJ. I remember very distinctly the conversations with the director at that time saying, how are we gonna be able to afford Yale's overhead rates? But the argument was that Dr. Kidd's work was so outstanding that we had to find a way. So, and we're glad we did. A lot of outstanding work in genetics over, over many, many years that has uh, benefited the forensic science community. And I think people need to learn a little bit more about it because it's extraordinary. So you've been doing work at Yale for a long time before you ever did any work in forensic science. Isn't that right? That's correct. I started at Yale in 1973. What were you doing in the 70s and 80s? What, what was most of your research about? Most of it was genetic models for complex traits, trying to collect family data on two disorders at that time. One was stuttering, and the other was major depression. And clearly both have a huge genetic component, but it's very difficult to pin down and still hasn't been for both of those disorders. But when we started on stuttering, it had a sex difference in its incidence, and that was a handle that we could try to use to see how it ran in families. And indeed, males are more frequently affected than females, but the relatives of an affected female are more frequently affected than the relatives of an affected male. How unusual, okay. <laughs> so that apparently it takes a bigger genetic load for a female to be affected. And if she has a bigger load, then there's more of whatever those genes are I in her the, family. 
I think females always have this advantage of the redundancy of the X chromosome. <laughs> but we, it's more complicated than that, I it's assume. It's much more complicated than that. It's clearly not related to... I'm just thinking like an engineer. That's, as an engineer, that's how I think. Is if you have redundancy, that's always a good thing. It makes the system more robust. Yes, but females are just more robust in general okay, than sure. males. Mm -hmm. Genetically, at least. Biologically. Mm-hmm. Look at lifespan, look sure. at retirement homes. There are 10 women for every male. How Off the top of my head, that's not valid. No, that's fine. Valid. So this was all pre-PCR. So were you actually looking at DNA itself, or were you looking at hereditary characteristics more we outside of the DNA itself? We were looking at mathematics to explain with an underlying genetics how it would pop up in these strange combinations and patterns of relatives in families. Now depression, they've actually done a fair amount of, of progress on. I was just reading some of the work about ketamine. Um, they were talking about how that is very particularly connected to specific things that they, that theories at least, about what's happening in certain parts of the brain at least. There's much better neuroscience, much better pharmacology, much better understanding of neurotransmitters and the circuitry in the brain, a lot of which is clearly related to depression in a biological sense. But there's still a lot of uncertainty about what particular genetic variation affects different parts of that circuitry. Mm -hmm. So when you, uh, when did you start connecting uh, your research in genetics broadly with actually looking at DNA sequencing it, itself, like looking at SNPs and STRs or whatever else you might have had, had been able to look at, or genes. genes goes types. back a long time. History and past experiences clearly affected the way I made a transition. I taught myself genetics out of a college textbook while I was in high school. When I got to college, I got a part-time job at City of Hope in a Drosophila research lab. And I worked there for five years. Where I was took, that? City of Hope is a hospital research complex in Duarte, California, east of L.A. Central. You grew up in California. We were learning before the podcast. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Went to college in, at University of Southern California. Okay. But while there, I took one year off school and worked full time there. And a lot of what I did was work on mapping new mutations in Drosophila. So I was doing linkage analysis. Where were these new mutations? on which chromosome, mm -hmm. and doing all the statistical analysis of that data to find out exactly what position it was in. And it was all with using gel electrophoresis, I assume? No, no, no. No, yeah. no, no. This was counting flies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow, I okay. in an experiment with a doubly heterozygous female. Okay. If it was an X chromosome mutant, we'd then look at her male offspring, and I would 
score a thousand or more male offspring from multiple female, but all of the same genotype, all sure. inbred strains and designed crosses. And the statistics of what percent of the time was it either both variants were present in the male or both wild type were present in the male or one variant at one locus and wild type at the other, vice versa. That's the statistical data that gives you the percentage of recombination, which is the basic genetic map, recombination map, not molecular. And now um, in humans, they're measured as centimorgans, not centimeters, but centimorgans. I had no idea that after, my family name was involved with that. But know. after Morgan, okay. the very important geneticist who started Drosophila research in the early 1900s, maybe 1909 or so. But the room was 904 Schirmerhorn Hall at Columbia University. (laughs) It's well known in Mm -hmm. genetics history, but I diverge. But I'd done all of this genetic mapping. Mm -hmm. Then when I started graduate school, I was interested, had always been in population genetics, but there were no DNA markers. There were essentially no enzyme markers. This is before Lewinton and Hubby and Harris showed this vast amount of normal variation in humans and any species. So that occurred while I was a graduate student. But a model for human population divergence was Wisconsin, the dairy state, many different herds of cattle. Oh, sure. from different parts of Europe, and how were they related? And that was what I did my PhD work on, using blood groups and hemoglobin variants and a couple of other not traits. That, not that much different from the ABFO typing and things like that that forensic science had to do at the time. Absolutely the same. Hemoglobin, ABO, RH... Lewis, Duffy. I said ABFO because I've been thinking about odontology, but ABO, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But there's also fetal hemoglobin. Okay. Anyway, then that got me into modeling. And so basically what got me the job at Yale, which I never applied for, but it was the old boy network. Mm -hmm. I gave a seminar there about starting to model for complex disorders. Stuttering was what I had started working on, and they offered me the job. And it must have been a very good seminar. I <laughs> it was well, well worth it. So um, I've been there ever since. Had a chance for both my wife and I to go back to Los Angeles with line item salary budgets at Mm -hmm. UCLA, which, given Yale is a private, (laughs) (laughs) you know, there's nothing foreordained salary. But by then, the Los Angeles we wanted to go back to 
had long since gone away. Sure, <laughs> and, sure, yeah, absolutely. And didn't have the intellectual environment that Yale had. But how did I get into SNPs? So we're well, now at Yale. Yeah, SNPs weren't even a thing back then, I guess. They so. didn't exist. Right, yeah. Well, they existed, but nobody knew what the heck they were. Well, <laughs> nobody, right. Yeah. So in the late 70s, was the first DNA polymorphism identified by Conandosi useful for diagnosing sickle cell anemia because this was yeah. normal variants in the hemoglobin complex and linked. Very famous, very, very, very famous discovery. Very famous. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, DNA variation. And about that time, I got involved in the human gene mapping workshops, which were held every other year. And most of that was using somatic cell methods, rodent lined with part of a human chromosome introgressed into the cell culture, mm -hmm. into the cells. And you could look for the human form of X. Okay. And if it showed up, then it was somewhere in that piece of chromosome. And you could look at the karyotype and see it so you knew where it was. And this was putting bits and pieces together and you could say, ah, this gene is on this chromosome, but we don't know where yet. Right, but it was, it was quite the detective work even to do a sing looking at a single gene. Absolutely. Kind of, right. Mm -hmm. But many labs, had genes that they knew were involved in diseases. Knowing where they are can give a lot of help in thinking about things. Now, I saw a talk from you a couple of years ago, and one of the things that you said, because sort of looking back as wise as we are now, or at least what we've learned, right? You know, we now have STRs, and they were all chosen because we all thought that they were in the so-called junk DNA part of the genome. It turns out it's not so much junk, is it? It's, it has regulatory functions that we are still just learning about. And it's impossible to say this variation has no consequences. Right. And so one of the things that was a challenge, it still is a challenge, and certainly was a challenge then that, we, that you didn't know, and that is that genetic diseases are so complex because the... Uh, human genome and as well as the genome and just DNA in general has all sorts of tricks it plays to let the organism continue, right? To, to be able to deal with whatever problem that it has. And we all have terrible errors in all of our, all of our DNA that are ready to kill us at any moment, but somehow our genome finds a way to adapt. Everybody uses the term complex DNA now. But in the early 70s, I said I was working on mathematical models for these diseases or disorders that run in families unquestionably, but don't show a clean Mendelian pattern of inheritance. Right. And I used the term complex. And a woman wrote to me, she's just finishing up her PhD dissertation, dealing with complex disorders. And she went through to try to find when that term came up, and the earliest she could find is one of my early papers <laughs> in the 70s. Sure. 
<laughs> not that it was any real breakthrough. They just, they are complex. Sure. And there probably really isn't such thing as junk DNA. It's probably every last little bit of it has some sort of phenotypic relevance. So you were looking at disease states in humans, and you and obviously this this material continued. I assume that when PCR was invented and and some of the more interesting techniques for sequencing came forward, that was really exciting to you as a geneticist. That was that opened up a whole new kind of research. But even before then the existence of a DNA polymorphism. Right. The Conondosi raised questions. How common is that? For mapping with linkage, meaning the statistical recombination in meiosis, not too many people refer to linkage as being on the same chromosome. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. But real genetic linkage for humans, we had less than 20 good genes. Right. So even five more was <laughs> a huge increase. Sure. I was very involved in the mapping studies that were beginning to get underway. And I was on the mammalian genetic study section at NIH. So even though I wasn't reviewing the molecular grants, I was there for the discussions, and in those days, we always had discussion. It was not necessarily a short course. They were four-day meetings, but sure. magnificent educational to hear people who were at the forefront of this discussing the pros and cons of different grant applications and arguing across the table with other experts. And there were grants coming in, and I remember one from Ray White proposing to find enough, and he had preliminary data to show he could, unpublished as yet, that they could generate a linkage map of the human genome with a marker every 10 centimorgans or closer. Mm -hmm. That would be magnificent. And it was clear it was coming. Sure. So in 1980, I took my first sabbatical, went to Boston, and learned the technology. It was very crude, was southern blotting, you had to have a probe that purified, radioactively labeled, digest the DNA, run it out, put it on a fil in a gel, sure. transfer it to a filter, probe the filter with the radioactively labeled probe, and see the band. And at one time, we were doing over 200 of those a week, finding new polymorphisms. I think the, uh, the analysis of that data must have been quite a challenge. That's a lot of data at the time to try to figure out how to, how to deconvolve into getting actual information about what was going on in the DNA. Well, we could pretty easily figure out. We had some family material. We could show it was inherited. 
and it was at this gene because we were using a clone of a gene mm -hmm. to probe. So if it was a single copy gene, we knew it was a DNA polymorphism at or near that gene. Okay. And because I was interested in, had been and still was, psychiatric disorders, by then I'd started working on Tourette syndrome as well as stuttering and depression. Sure. We started looking at neurotransmitter genes, dopamine uh, receptor 2, DRD2, a candidate variant looking for a disease to cause was at various times associated sure. <laughs> with almost anything in small studies. I'm going to ask you a, a challenging question because it's come up, especially the genetic understanding of, of issues having to do with psychology and neuroscience are, uh, have, have become better, you know, our understanding of that oh, connection. Yes. I mean, what's your view? Is there going to be a point in the future where criminal justice is going to have to be thinking more as a um, rehabilitative kind of approach, you know, in, in terms of understanding what's going on with people from that perspective. Some people, it's going to have some issues there, right? I mean, we how can we blame people for their genetics? Florida, yeah? The mass shooting. Is that right? Oh, well, of course, yes, the, the shooting in the, at the school in Florida. He is clearly a very troubled man. I don't understand. But I think back to a quote, this is secondhand, but I thought it was marvelous, and I can't at the moment remember the man's name. But if the human brain were so simple we could understand it, we would be so simple we couldn't. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> yeah. So we're thinking of complex disorders. Sure. How complex are we ever going to be able to dig down to all the minutiae because there's genetic variation in the regulation, in the sequence of the proteins, in all of these regulatory RNAs in the, mm -hmm. the three prime UTR region where the micro RNAs bind and stabilize and cause degradation of the messenger. Sure. Um, so all of this means you never have a replicate. Right. No two people are even partially the same. Right. Except, okay, individuals from a single conception. Mm -hmm. And even that has, has uh, enormous differences. I mean, yeah. And mutation yeah. and just chance. There aren't right. enough genes to say that neuron 5,860,000, sure. whatever, must synapse with neuron 2 billion, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Right, right. There right. are general directions, clearly, but there's not enough DNA in the world to be that specific. It's, it's going to be difficult, right? So, I mean, there are some people, for whatever reason, or again, is like it with any other disease state, who are going to be more robust against that disease state than others. And, and it's difficult to even tease that out. And it may always be difficult to really tease that out in terms yeah. of where the 
connections are. Let's go back to Yale again. <laughs> okay. So we're really at the point where I came back from my sabbatical, set up a major wet lab, mm -hmm. meaning did actual experiments, not just on the computer. So made that transition and started looking at DNA variation and mapping them. And really jumped feet first, maybe head first, right into that field, deviating from what I'd done, you know, a considerable different from what I'd done before. But remember, I'd done all that mapping in Drosophila as an undergraduate, and now I could start developing the markers, and I knew all the statistics to do the same thing in humans. I see. So that's my theme of what was before. Okay. <laughs> greatly influenced what I ended up doing. Sure. Then we started trying to map inherited disorders. So I got, I think, the very first grant from the National Cancer Institute at NIH to map a cancer gene. There was, through the uh, collaborator in pediatrics, a big family with multiple endocrine neoplasia, type 2A. How does that manifest itself? It manifests itself as endocrine cancers. Okay. And with surgery, they tend not to metastasize, so with surgery, if you know you are at risk, you can have surgery early before it even turns to cancer. Mm -hmm. There are tests to look at when you might have onset, but they're extremely stressful and unpleasant, and half the people in the family don't have the gene. Right. But have to go through the test. So mapping the gene meant you could do pre-symptomatic diagnosis and you could relieve the ones that didn't inherit the gene from the worry about would they get the cancer from mm -hmm. the unpleasant yearly or periodic testing to see if they did have the endocrine tumor. Sure. And we ended up mapping it very close to the centromere on chromosome 10, fairly large collaboration, but it took several years because there wasn't a map yet available. We sure. were finding the polymorphisms on the chromosomes that would allow us to look, and we finally found some on chromosome 10 that were close enough that statistically, we could say that genes on chromosome 10. Let's think about that for a little bit. So at this time, it was becoming clear, though, just how many polymorphisms there were in the human genome. And so one of your challenges was you were coming up, you were finding polymorphisms all the time, but that weren't related to the cancer that you were interested in in your research, but were there, I mean. And, and many other researchers were doing the same thing, finding all exactly. these polymorphisms. And when others found them, we'd try to study them on 
our disease family because if you've got 10 markers total and 22 pairs of chromosomes, autosomal, we knew it wasn't X-linked, you're not going to learn very much with those 10, but you need a couple of hundred and you have to know where they are and how close they are and what order they're in along the chromosome. Mm -hmm. So my understanding has always been, well, DNA is just a bunch of protein recipes. And proteins are basically like, you know, those tents that you get at REI. You know, they, they kind of fold together in a particular shape if everything's working well. And when you have a polymorphism, what happens is all of a sudden one of the springs is out of place. <laughs> and it'll fold wrong. And so it won't do the job that it's meant to do. And that a lot of disease states related to polymorphism is basically ba based on the fact that the proteins are folding wrong. Is that basically right? And was that basic understanding reflected in the research at the time? And how did, that, how did those connections that, come about? Yes, I think that was basically the idea because we didn't know anything about regulation at that time. Sure. So you can, a lot of what are now cancer genes are genes that sort of are misregulated. They may not have a different structure, sure. but they're not produced in as much and a high enough number of protein molecules, or they may have too many protein molecules. So other functions, it's all a set of enzymatic equations and yeah, I mean, interactions. Always, yeah, I guess that was always my other impression, and that is there's, anyone who's been a chemist knows that equilibrium is a very interesting concept. And if your job was to maintain a quart of water with a particular concentration of potassium over a 50-year period, that's a technically hard problem. But the body does that and thousands of other regulatory kinds of things all the time. But it's not equilibrium. Right. We are constantly shoving blood through the kidney and things are going one way from the blood into the glomeruli and then the water is being reabsorbed later on and we end up with urine. That's not an equilibrium situation. Sure. And so the argument then would be how important the regulatory processes must be. Exactly. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Kenneth Kidd, for being with us on Just Science. And please make sure that you subscribe. Make sure you get your students to, to listen in. And we appreciate your participation today. Well, thank you. It's been fun, mostly reminiscing. <laughs> I have enormous fun reminiscing and hearing it. Next week, Just Science interviews Julie Sikorsky about creating a culture of change with her experiences in the Forensic Biology Unit at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Crime Laboratory. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Mm -hmm.